Well, some would say we've had church today, and uh, indeed we have. Uh, I think it has been a wonderful uh, celebration. You know, the resurrection is something that we celebrate every single Sunday here at Faith, but it is true that on a given Sunday like this, we join with believers around the world as we uh, celebrate in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we welcome you here today. Uh, last Sunday evening, my wife Marie and I visited my parents up in Pennsylvania and attended a, a concert uh, with them that was uh, rehearsing the aspects of the Holy Week and of the resurrection. It was produced by the True Gospel Church of Buck County. <laughs> and, uh, but what really captured my attention was a young brother of about eight or nine years old who was sitting with his little sister about three or four. Their parents were both singing in the choir, uh, but the little girl was sitting on her big brother's lap facing him and looking at his brother's eyes, and she would be kissing him on the cheek. And after kissing him, she would start licking him on the cheek and smiling, and he was wiping his cheek off, but clearly taking delight in his little sister's playful affections. She had her little hands wrapped around his head, and her little fingers, I could see, embraced his hair. And I was sitting behind them, and I could see the father in the choir, uh, being somewhat distracted by his two children. And it was clear that the little girl had no interest at all in this concert. But just in her big brother, who, was clear, who she clearly adored. And every so often, the big brother would just give this little sister a, a big, enveloping love hug. And you could see that she was trying to muffle her giggles. The little girl was whispering to him with big smiles, and it really was the high point of my evening that night, seeing this big brother taking care and loving his little affectionate, playful sister. Now, after the performance, the father came down from the stage and took the hands of both of his children and walked out of the room. I'm assuming to discipline them for being a distraction of sorts. But if I could have been there, I would have told the dad, please don't correct your children. You sang wonderful songs about the resurrection, but they displayed the loving wonders of the resurrection. Their playful affections for each other were evidences of what you were singing about. It was the best performance of the night for me. Thank you for nurturing such love in your children. You know, C.S. Lewis captures some of the joyful love and affection and energy of the resurrection in the closing scene in the Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the Christ-figured lion, though innocent, became a willing victim to be executed in the place of a traitor but then rose from the dead because of the deeper magic of Narnia. 
The formerly despondent Lucy and Susan, who thought they lost their beloved friend, had mourning turned into dancing as the great Aslan, now full of life, frolics with these daughters of Eve. He says there, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. Now you might be thinking, that such playful, joyful celebration is out of character with the Bible and the seriousness of the Bible. But the scriptures give us images of heaven and the realities of our resurrected lives. And in Zechariah 8, 5, it says, gives us this image of the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there, playing laughing, singing, dancing, celebrating, making sport are images of our resurrected lives. Martin Luther said, Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection not in books, but on every leaf in springtime. But I would also add, in every gathering of children playing in our city streets. I've seen a lot of play on the streets in Penn Lucy here this week, particularly on Springfield Avenue. But I add that this is a picture of heaven. And we capture an initial picture of the wonders and the celebration of the resurrection in this joyful energy of these two Marys running to tell the good news to Jesus' disciples. It says in verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, that is not just terror, but worship and reverence and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The resurrection turned these two mourning women into worshiping, joy-filled, running women. The Gospel of John tells us this news set the disciples, Peter and John, in a foot race and notes that John outran Peter to the empty tomb. And then one of the passages in uh, John 21, on the appearances of Jesus, Peter was out fishing with his disciples, and Peter, half naked in a fishing boat, realizes the resurrected Lord is standing by the seashore, and in utter abandonment and excitement, throws himself into the lake, and in a, in a mad swimming dash to see Jesus. In his book on the rise of Christianity, Sociologist Rodney Stark sought to understand what was behind the reasons for the growth of Christianity. How the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. And he calculated that the number of Christians rose from approximately 1,000 believers, about 0.17% of the Roman Empire, in AD 40, but grew to nearly 34 million by 350 A.D. That's 56% of the total population. In 350 A.D., over half the population of the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus. This was nearly after three centuries of persecution. These were not nominal believers. These were people that became martyrs. The early Christians gave their lives for their faith, yet the early church grew by an astonishing growth rate. 
In the last chapter of Matthew 28, the verses that we heard read by Corey today, I believe that we find some of the core reasons why this growth of Christianity took place. And particularly the resurrection was the compelling reason that Jesus' followers followed him with such joyful devotion. And here we see in that resurrection account that he esteems the devalued, that he embraces the doubters, and he empowers the disciple makers. He esteems the devalued. In verse 1 it says, After the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So Jesus was determined to make the women the first witnesses of the resurrection. No one in that day would have started, who wanted to start a new religion, would have ever crafted a story using women as the first witnesses. For decades and centuries, women had been treated as second-class citizens to men, lived in a culturally oppressive state. In that society, women were seen as inferior, were classified in the same category with children and slaves, could be divorced for any reason, had no legal rights, and were not allowed to give testimony in the court of law because they were considered incompetent and untrustworthy. Yet these Marys, unacceptable witnesses as they were, were recorded as the first to visit the empty tomb and were commissioned to be the first witnesses, the first gospels of the central redemption of the act of our history as Christians. Come and see the place where he lay. Go then quickly and tell his disciples. No marketing person inventing a new religion would have ever used women to launch a new faith. Celsus, a Greek philosopher uh, who lived 80 years after Christ, he did not like Christianity. And he wrote books trying to refute Christianity. He said, one of the reasons we know Christianity is not true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And he said, we all know that women are hysterical. And that apparently was, in the ancient times, the perception of so many. And he said, only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. And that's what he categorized. Well, what does this mean? It means... If Matthew and the other gospel accounts were making up the story of the resurrection, they would have never put women in as the first eyewitnesses account of the resurrection. The only possible reason that we have this recorded was that it was not fabricated. It was not a fabricated myth, but it was historical writings. It is because Christ, historian uh, Kenneth Scott Latteret said, was not merely merely a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation and presented an unprecedented radical inclusiveness where members of both sexes and all races, the learned, the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able might, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. And so this status elevation of esteeming women along with other marginalized people and races captivated the hearts of the masses. An early church father said in the Salt of the Earth article, living conditions at that time were horrid. Overwhelmed cities were unsanitary, dangerous, unpleasant places to live. Life expectancy was around 30 years for males, and infanticide, or especially for girls, was common. 
marriage was typically an abusive relationship and abortion and adultery were rampant. But Christian marriage and child-rearing practices were in stark contrast. The Christian home was the primary means of spreading the gospel in early church history. Pagan women found Christian homes to be highly attractive, and as a result, a disproportionate number of converts during this time were women. And in turn, the presence of these women drew men, pagan men who were looking for wives. In this resurrection, Jesus esteems the devalued and the marginalized. And last week, Pastor Stan uh, presented a a development that's taken place across the street, uh, Restoration Gardens 2, which is providing 40-some units of efficiency housing for homeless youth. And it's a great opportunity to see those, those young people, men, young men and young women, empowered. But right around the corner here at Blessed Sacrament Church, uh, you see construction that's going on. And what's happening there is that 35 years ago, uh, the Sisters of Mercy and the Sisters of Notre Dame were working with uh, incarcerated, or women that are, were incarcerated, and were trying to break the cycle of addiction and incarceration, and they started to reach out, and that started what's called the Miriam House. And so what's happening here just uh, on on Old York and 42nd Street is they're developing 22 units of permanent housing uh, to come alongside of these women and uh, children and uh, they're providing housing. It is a great opportunity for our church to be part of the love of Christ and to welcome these these new new residents of Penn Lucy into our church and to be able to experience the, the greater love and the presence of Christ. But what we find is that Jesus is his resurrection reveals to us how he esteems and he values the undervalued and the low esteemed in our society. And so if you're here today and you're feeling any pain of being devalued or overlooked or ignored or marginalized, you need to know that the resurrected Christ, he comes to you and he affirms you and he goes after you and he loves you and he wants you to know that you're important and you're important to him. But the resurrection also shows us that Jesus embraces the doubters. And in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Here's these disciples having this encounter with Jesus, the risen Lord. They worshipped him, and it says, but some doubted. I really actually love that phrase, (laughs) some doubted. Historians will tell you that if someone was to attempt to craft some kind of legend to start a new religious movement they would not introduce such language of doubt but matthew is telling us the way it is it took a while for the disciples to work through their doubts and their uncertainties about jesus coming back to life now what does jesus do with doubters what's he do with those struggling with belief and faith well he embraces them and he loves them and he spends time with them. You know, nobody, nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see a tomb where Jesus was supposed to be buried. They did not go thinking they were going to find a living Jesus. The consistent message on all the gospel accounts is that neither the men, the disciples, or the women of disciples of Christ were expecting to find a risen Savior. And every account it took a long time to convince them that it was true. The consistent emotion 
was one of despair and despondency. They were crushed. Their Messiah was murdered. Everyone expected Jesus would stay dead. And there is a mild rebuke, is it not, in the, in the, uh, with the women when the angel said, uh, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Do you remember he said that? <laughs> Jesus actually four times in the gospel accounts repeated that he would be arrested, that he would be tortured, that he would be crucified, but on the third day he would rise again from the dead. They heard that, but it just did not sink in. But the women were not expecting the resurrection on the third day. In Luke's account, it says that when the women came back to the disciples, to the report, it says they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense, like idle tales. The point here is that Jesus' followers were not naive or gullible, easy-believing pushovers. They were disbelievers. They were skeptics. They were doubters. They were calloused, blue-collar salty-talking fishermen, they were hard-hearted tax collectors, and they were militant extremists. Uh, they were not weak-minded followers. It took a lot to convince them. We find in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that after Christ's suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs or infallible proofs that he was alive. He appeared over a period of 40 days. But then we see this cover-up. We realize that the, the empty tomb was a problem. And uh, so Bill talked about how they provided these, these Roman guards to guard the tomb, these, these rangers, these seals, the best of the best. But we find that Matthew wrote this account, this account of what was the story, which was that Jesus, that the disciples came and stole the body but Matthew writes his account within 30 years after the resurrection. And in his account, if this was a cover-up rumor by body-snatching disciples, it would have been proven untrue and debunked. This would mean that the disciples would have gotten past the Roman guard of a unit of four to 16 men security force with this world-renowned, highly disciplined fighting machine, that they would have to recruit 500 other people to lie for them as well because there's an account in, in, in Corinthians where it says 500 people saw Jesus at one time and then they would have to keep up this lie. They had to keep this lie up for the rest of their lives for the next 50 years first and then they would all have to be willing to die for the lie since the disciples all faced a martyr's death except for John. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and physicist and inventor of the calculator said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. One said, whoever reads the New Testament seriously or gives thought to the impact which the apostles made upon their generation must acknowledge that one outstanding historic event alone spurred the small band of 11 ordinary men to do an amazing task of evangelization in their generation, defying every obstacle, loss of home, persecution, even death itself. They evidence the supreme relevance in their ministry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. 
Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus founded his empire upon love. And this hour, millions of men would die for him. Uh, I've had the pleasure of, of walking alongside of a, of a young man who's been worshiping at faith for the last several months. Uh, he, he really knew nobody here in the church. He lives in the neighborhood, and he saw the church sign, and he just felt compelled to come to worship one Sunday, and he's been coming for the last several months. And he's, he's actually been processing his own struggles with faith and his own belief in who Jesus is. But he's been coming very consistently, and I've had the pleasure just to kind of be in the journey with him. But he he wrote me this uh, a couple months ago, and I asked for permission to share it, and he did, gave it to me. Uh, he said, I read some last night and have been thinking, to my concern that I'll never know enough or that I'll profess belief only to stumble across a worldview which shatters it, I think I come to this. As infinite as the possibilities may be, Jesus ultimately asked Peter, who do you say that I am? So either Jesus is or is not the Son of God. I think I could go on searching and seeking, but that it would, but that it would, would be a neutral quest. Every new discovery adds to the knowledge I've rejected. I have weighed much evidence and been given time to think the step is either to accept or reject. Now, other self-proclaimed deities or prophets may have made similar exclusive requests but this is what he says, and he has asterisks over each one of these. He says, but from moments in my life, the evidence and conviction of guilt which I have sensed in my better moments, my failed efforts to be the things I consider good, a small taste of what it feels like to actually do something loving, those I've met, both Christian and non-Christian, the faults I've witnessed in those I most looked up to, the history of the church and its endurance across the world, the historical evidence to support the Christian worldview, the image of morality portrayed by Christ in whom I find the only possible solution to the problems of the world, my hope that life does have meaning and that it is not futile, and the hope that he does love every single person, including me, I say yes to Jesus as Lord, and I believe. <laughs> Uh, the wonderful thing uh, I experienced about this young man was just his humble and honest pursuit. He addressed his doubts. He engaged his doubts. And he brought his doubts to Christ. And the great thing about Jesus is that he's not surprised by our struggle with faith. He's not surprised by our doubts. He embraces doubters. And he incorporates into his prized team of apostles those individuals who had deep struggles with faith. You might be here too, and you might be struggling with whether you can fully trust Jesus. Well, Jesus wants to meet you in your sincere struggle. Jesus embraces and comes to those weak in faith, to deserters and, and deniers and despondent and the doubters. Matthew's up front that Jesus embraces the doubters. But you also need to know this. One pastor says, there lies a basic flaw in all doubt. It can never be Fully satisfied. 
no evidence is fully, finally enough. There is a doubt that wants always to consume, never to consummate. It clamors endlessly for an answer, but drowns out any answer that might be given. It demands proof, but will doubt the proof offered. Doubt, then, can become an appetite gone wrong. To keep God at arm's length, to be an excuse to never believing, because no evidence will be enough. Such is not sincere doubt, but stubborn unbelief. But what do sincere doubters do? I like this passage, and the passage shows us that they worshipped him, but some doubted. The doubters were in the worshipping community. Uh, they exposed themselves to a community of faith and grace. They brought their doubts to Jesus, and Jesus met them at their place of doubt. And so if you're one of those doubters, if you're struggling, and I would just want to say, if you're here today, and you've, you've been struggling with doubt, but you decided to come to an Easter service, I'm just so glad that you're here. We just welcome you, and I pray that you would continue to experience uh, the grace of God and you continue to experience the fellowship as he wants to work with you in your doubts. But the final thing is that Jesus empowers the disciple-makers. Not only does he esteem the devalued and embrace the doubters, but he empowers the disciple-makers. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, we've been in a whole series of, of studying through the Gospel of Matthew in our, in our worship. And a major theme of Matthew is that Jesus presents himself as the king who has ushered in a kingdom. It's, uh, it's a kingdom not of this world, but it's a kingdom that connects with this world. And he is, uh, it's a kingdom that is for all nations. Uh, it's quite a, an amazing movement of Jesus coming as this, as this king. And in this passage, this final words of Jesus to his disciples, he makes a rather audacious, astounding claims. He says, all authority in heaven and in, on earth has been given to me. <laughs> that is rather audacious, do you not think? I mean, who, who, says, who says those kinds of things? It seems ridiculous when you start thinking about it. I mean... Jesus is saying he has all authority. There's this uh, pretty uh, boring theologian by the name of Alfred Plummer. He lived back in the 1800s, and most of his stuff is very dry, but it's been said when you get to this commentary on this passage, all of a sudden there's this passion and the emotions rise, and this is some of the things that he says. He says, again, one asks, who is it that dares thus confidently to make this amazing claim? Who is it that utters it as if it were a simple matter of fact about which there was no question? Not merely power or might, such as a great conqueror might claim, but authority as something which is his by right, conferred upon him by one who has the right to bestow it, and all authority, embracing everything over which rule and dominion can be exercised, and that not only on earth, but on the authority of, of uh, heaven itself. He says, nothing less than the divine government of the whole universe and the kingdom of heaven has been given 
to the risen Lord. No mere human being in his senses ever made such a claim as this. It is in this plentitude of divine authority that he lays upon his, his, his apostle and church his last great charge and to them his last great promise. It is rather audacious. You know, it's really not a friendly postmodern or modern cultural thing to, for anyone to say that I have all the authority, not just here on planet Earth, but in the whole universe. I mean, who has the right to say something like that? Only someone who lived a perfect life. An innocent man who died, but death could not conquer him. He rose from the dead. That's who can do that. And Jesus did that. But it's important for you to realize how audacious that claim is. And you have to deal with the audaciousness of that claim. C.S. Lewis said it like this. A man who was merely a man and said, that sort of, said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. <laughs> when I was uh, 15 years old, I you know, came into an encounter with, with this Jesus. You know, I came to realize I was... A sinner in need of a savior it just seemed like a simple thing that I owed obedience to my creator I knew I was I, I, I had fought, fallen in so many ways and so I embraced Jesus uh, you know I confessed my sins and I gave my life to Christ in high school and, and uh, then I was in this church the church that I grew up in uh, this granite Grand Presbyterian Church and and I can't really remember a lot of experience. I mentioned in the past here that this, that actually in that foyer there, right behind those red doors when I was four years old, that was where this pastor picked me up and started shaking me because I had torn up the bulletin in the front pew. And that was my earliest church memory. And by the way, you know, uh, somehow I was able to disassociate the pastor from Jesus. You know, I didn't consider this guy to be Jesus. And so that was a good thing. You know, the, here's the deal. The church will fail you. Pastors will fail you. I will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Jesus will never fail you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That's what he said. But uh, so I gave my life to Christ. And then, you know, the church leaders made me like a youth leader by the time I was 17. So I'm teaching and leading the high school youth ministry as a youth, uh, which tells you how crazy that church was. <laughs> they were very gracious to me. But my brother and I, my older brother, we decided, let's, hey, let's do a sunrise service, uh, which like early morning sunrise service on, a, on Easter morning. And, uh, 
And so we said, yeah, let's do that. And then we said, well, let's, let's get a cross. So we, we, we cut down a pine tree, and we made this big cross, and we sunk it in the ground. And then we went around the community, and we invited people to this sunrise service. Uh, and people came. People came. You know, we sang songs. Uh, there were some scriptures read. There was a testimony given. There was some talking. And there was an invitation for people to, to, to know Jesus. And we thought it was a, pr a pretty successful time. But then, like afterwards, the leadership of that church said, we don't want this emotional religion here. And there's no need to invite people to know Jesus. Uh, soon afterwards, we realized that we couldn't really practice our faith there, and, and we left. And the church has grown in, in different ways. There's been occasions where I've gone back to funerals. And lo and behold, when I've gone back, and this is like 45 years ago that we planted this cross on that property, the old cross rotted out. But they decided they're going to keep a cross on their property, just where we planted that one. And so you go there, and there's this cross where we had our first sunrise Easter service. I thought, isn't that interesting? And it's an interesting thing about Christianity. You have to deal not only with the stubbornness of an empty cross, but the stubbornness of an empty tomb. Who is this who rose from the dead? And what will you do with him? I can tell you that that was 45 or so years ago. And I, as a believer and as a pastor, confess to you, I have struggled with my faith. I've had a lot of doubts over these years. I've struggled with hard passages about the scriptures. I've struggled with the sufferings that I see in the world and in the, in the congregation and wondering often, like, where are you, God, in all of this mess? I have struggled and many times I've been tempted just to say, forget this. But what keeps me coming back and what I can't get away from is the reality of an empty cross and an empty tomb. And because of that, I have trusted. And so I stand here as a weak vessel with a strong God. I stand here as a weak pastor, but a risen Savior. And, uh, you know, Paul said... When he felt overwhelmed, he says, we felt the sentence of death, but this was given to us that we might not rely on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Jesus comes after you. You feel devalued. He comes to esteem you. If you feel doubts and struggles, he comes to embrace you. And if you feel your struggle with following Jesus, he will empower you. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us uh, this passage that reveals to us so much wonders of your resurrection and how you penetrated so many hardened walls, Lord. And, and we thank you for the running of these women and the playfulness of the disciples. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrected Lord. We pray that, God, we would enter into that. I pray for any here that 
is struggling with their own doubts, God, that they would be able to, to find the answers in you. And God, we commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen.